This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey guys, what's up? Kevin Jones, founder of Blue Wire. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Do me a favor, send it to one of your friends. We're growing this network, grassroots style. It takes everyone. You're a part of our team if you send this to one of your friends. All right, enjoy this podcast and appreciate your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Angie Bailey. We are, however, beginning to roll out our exit interviews for every lottery team and squads as they get eliminated from the playoffs, and I am super excited to be joined by Mike Zavagno. He is a writer for Dime Uprox, covers the entire league over there, and he's also uh, covers the Cavs for Fear the Sword. You can follow him on Twitter at mzvagno11. That's M-Z-A-V-A-G-N-O-11. He is a fantastic Twitter follow, so if you don't already follow him, he does everything from analytics. Got some nice jokes, too, and his X's and O's breakdowns are are always fun. We are going to talk about some stuff other than the Cavs too, since uh, I'm always happy when I can bring on people who follow one team really well, but Mike is super awesome at covering the entire NBA. So we'll, I'll, I'll steal some quick thoughts from him on a couple playoff series, but first we have to ask Mike, how the hell are you doing? I'm doing well. I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, I've uh, been looking forward to coming on this podcast and hanging out with you. So uh, again, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, you're much too kind. Um, the and if it, hey, th- this will be a quick aside. You, my family will already like you better than me because you are a lawyer. You did make it through law school, practicing lawyer, and that's the traditional holiday thing. Is uh, my family talking about how I never went to law school or should have gone to law school? Sports <laughs> writer instead. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't speak for your family, but, you know, it, it hasn't been the world's easiest road. So, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm alive. I'm, I'm trying to thrive. But uh, it, it goes day by day, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you made it through law school while covering the league like you did. I mean, your, you know, video threads and stuff like those were going up while you were still in law school. So I don't I have no idea. I barely have time to breathe now, I feel like, and I don't know how people or you specifically did that whilst in law school. Yeah, you know, 1L was definitely uh, one of the tougher years of my life. And uh, after you kind of go through that process, get get a job and, you know, they released you into 2L and 3L, I was able to start watching the NBA much more intently and, you know, try to work on 
building up the the basketball side of things. So after one L, I think it was not as bad as, as people might say, but you know, one L definitely felt like three or four years to me. <laughs> um, well, we congratulate you, class of two thousand eighteen. So I congratulate you there. To bring this over to the NBA, though. Uh, we'll start with a couple playoff questions. Here's a big one. Uh, how much better than Kawhi Leonard is is Derek White? Oh, I mean, have have you seen him play? Twelve of fifteen from two today. Twelve of seventeen from the field total. Uh, basically, a perfect basketball game as far as I'm concerned. So I, I think he might be the best player in the NBA. Do I mean the Spurs' ability just to find guys after number twenty-five? I know people laud the you know Kawhi Leonard trade. Uh, but just if you look at the track record of just players that they've picked up just late in the first round, uh, Manu was 57 in the second. Tony Parker was 28. George Hill was 26, and they were able to turn him into Leonard. Even Corey Joseph at 29 or Kyle Anderson at 30. And then both Murray and White, who could end up or probably will end up being key cornerstones for this team, were both drafted um, at number 29 within two years of each other, within a year of each other. It's just absolutely ridiculous. The funniest part about it is I feel like everybody is always like whatever guy who gets drafted in that range by the Spurs, everybody's always like, oh, Spurs guy, definitely going to be great. And I feel like that was especially the sentiment when it came to uh, Derek White and everybody was like, how did he drop this far? The Spurs are going to make him amazing. And then you watch tonight's game and it's like, well, you know, that sentiment was actually true. He looks really, really good out there. Look, I'm just waiting for Levio Zon Charles to come over. Still, that's just that's all I'm waiting on. That has to put their their uh, their draft to uh, draft acumen to the test. So that's what I'm waiting on. Um, so are the Nuggets? I know it's only two one in this series, and I I know you're working, so I'm not sure how much of the actual game you caught. This was the series, though, that I think everyone pegged uh, as the biggest upset potential, and you can put that in air quotes because after the Warriors and the there's not a ton of separation between teams. Do you think this is just based on how the series has gone um, and how Denver struggled to defend San Antonio at points and what, what Denver's almost allowed Derek White to do on defense to them? Do you think the Nuggets are just done, or is this a series you still see them winning or think that they could come back and win? No, I think it's still a series from the perspective of the Nuggets. I mean, obviously it's 2-1 now. I bet some hard-earned dollars on the Spurs tonight. I, I felt pretty confident in them going home. You know, Jamal Murray, aside from the fourth quarter in Game 2, really has not shown up in this series. And I, it's hard to, you know, be taking about these types of things, but it really does feel to some degree as if Nikola Jokic just is not assertive enough in these basketball games. You know, you're watching these games and you're just – waiting for him to really take control of the Nuggets offense and and take control of the game. And it just comes less often than you feel like it should for a guy who should be considered a superstar. And you look up at the box score and, you know, we're we're midway through the third quarter and he may have seven, eight shot attempts. And with the guys that they have surrounding him, especially with the struggles of Harris and Murray, both from deep for large parts of this season and the way that, you know, Will Barton has shot the ball since the playoffs have started, it's just not good enough. I mean, you really want a guy who 
is as talented and as skilled on the offensive end as Nikola Jokic to attack the defense in in the ways that he can. And I feel like in this series, he just hasn't put himself and his team in a position to succeed as many times as I feel like he should for a player of his caliber. Yeah, and game three there, it seemed like he tried to take over a point in the second half, but he still, just with all he could do, um, I know it's probably just not in his DNA, but even – I know he didn't shoot the best clip from three this year, um, was three of six in game three, and he passed up probably like four to six good opportunities that I thought he could have taken. So, I mean, there's a push and pull because he generates a ton of points off assists, but I think you hit it on the head. Um, if you're not going to get consistent performances from uh, Jamal Murray, when, when Will Barton hasn't really shown up since November, uh, basically whenever he came back, he got injured and then he's come back and uh, his shot selection hasn't been the same. His efficiency has just been all off. And, and now you're relying on guys like Monte Morris and Malik Beasley, not just to be solid role players, but you need them to generate a good amount of offense. It, it's certainly problematic. It's just Jokic for me is a constant push and pull. I, I tend to view him uh, more favorably than most people when we're talking about the star slash superstar conversation, but you can definitely feel it in a setting like this, where maybe you want to see him have those, you know, 20 shot nights, even, you know, he took 14 shots in game three, eight of 14, um, four foul shots. I mean, it's fine. And there were points where it looked like he was being more aggressive in the second half, but it feels like he could stand, like you said, to bring it up another notch or five. I agree. I think that I side with you more generally on the idea of Nikola Jokic and how good he is as a player. And it it might just say something more generally about the dependent players in the playoffs and how it's a little bit easier, especially for a coach of the caliber of Greg Popovich, to scheme around guys who rely on other people to get them the ball in their spots And when you look at this Denver team, you don't really have that one true centerpiece from the guard position. Obviously, Jamal Jamal Murray has shown, especially in game two, what he can do. But that's not something that he's doing on a consistent basis every single night, every single possession. And so when you have a guy in Murray and Harris and Monty Morris who are looking to create the offense more through their passing than through their shooting or through their capabilities off the dribble and attacking the paint, you become, I think, a bit more schemable. And as you said at the outset, I think that that's kind of why a lot of people going into these playoffs were so high on the idea of fading Denver, even though San Antonio might not have looked like the greatest matchup to take them down on paper. Yeah, definitely. I agree with uh, everything you said there. Uh, If I had to push you for a prediction, what do you think happens with this series? I think that Denver probably ends up taking this one in seven. Uh, I think I picked Denver in six at the outset. And uh, if I were going to be at least predicting this in the short term, I think that Denver takes game four pretty handily. Yeah, I'm just one of those stubborn people that don't like to back off my prediction. So I picked the Nuggets in seven, um, sticking to it. Uh, I will back off of my Thunder in seven prediction against the Blazers, which is one of the other series I wanted to ask you about really quickly is there i mean after falling behind 2-0 to portland and it's not no no disrespect to portland but i looked at this as a series they were going to play enos Cantor a bunch um their second best player in the regular season and yusuf nurkic uh is not available i i thought they could push the thunder because okc's offense has been out of whack for a good portion of the season and they're so reliant on paul george just hitting these 
Damian Lillard-esque three-pointers, basically, and that when they're not falling or when he doesn't have even one other consistent shooter around him, they are beatable. I just, I mean, I didn't see, they've been bad. I mean, they're shooting 16.7% in the series on wide open or open three-pointers, and I think they're at like 16.1% overall. Uh, CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard have hit more three-pointers through two games than the entire Thunder team. Is there, is that, is the series really as simple as that for OKC, that if they have guys who are going to hit their wide open shots and they're going to be left open, that they have a chance? Or do you see something a little bit more ingrained in this matchup for them? No, I think that I haven't loved the game plan out of Billy Donovan so far in this series. I feel like, especially given that the Thunder have intimately understood Enos Cantor's deficiencies given that he played for them, you would look for a little bit more direct attacking of him on the defensive end. And, you know, that has been something that the Thunder have done occasionally, but I think that they've tended more towards Stephen Adam post-ups than, than I would like. I think that the one-on-one attacking of Cantor isn't as good of a plan as kind of making him try to defend in space. I might look to go to more Paul George, Stephen Adams pick and rolls and hope that you can kind of get Paul George in isolation situation against Enos Cantor. I mean, it's obvious that the Thunder haven't shot the ball extremely well through these two games. But if you look at their roster, especially given Paul George's injury, you're not entirely sure where that shooting bump is going to come from. And so I think that the Thunder have the ability to get back into this series, but it's going to take, you know, I think a little bit more from a strategy perspective than we've seen through these two games. Has it become almost like to the point where we can't pick on Russ as a joke anymore? I haven't made any... Uh, I, I get off cheesy jokes on Twitter all the time. I haven't made a single one about him during the series. I just feel like he tries so hard, and now it's become a cliche. But there's – I'm not even just looking at this series specifically, but he there's a chance he won't win a playoff series in the um, post-Kevin Durant era. He's on that contract. Uh, are the Thunder going to have – if they get bounced in this series? And, again, I think you said if they can come back, they, they were a really good team for a good portion of the season. I know the schedule got harder in the second half, but I think – their regression had a lot more to do with Paul George's shoulder injury. Uh, if they end up losing, does I don't know what the what they do, but does Oklahoma City have to really start asking some tough, uncomfortable questions? And I know that seems like I'm leading you to should they trade Russell Westbrook? I don't know that he's actual actually movable. I'm just they're so taxed out. I don't really know how they uh, improve this team if they get not even just bounce in the first round, but there's a chance that they could lose this thing in five. I mean, if they drop game three or game four, it's basically over. Yeah, no, that's a, a good point. And, I mean, it's tough to kind of look at this from a holistic perspective, given that Paul George has been battling this shoulder injury and how he was playing at, you know, close to an MVP level before he had this injury. And you kind of, you know, have to wonder what the Thunder would have looked like in the playoffs, maybe even in the regular season, to jockey for seeding if Paul George was playing 100% down the stretch. And so you obviously understand that you have deficiencies, and they're the same deficiencies that I think that this team has had forever. It's that they don't have guys who are reliable shooters on the wing. Terrence Ferguson has been that for a little bit this year, but you just don't have the Kyle Corvers, the J.J. Reddicks of the world who are going to get you guaranteed open looks from threes or even contested looks that they're going to knock them down. And I think that the Thunder have really struggled to add a guy like that throughout the Russell Westbrook era. And you just wonder what 
adding someone of that caliber to the offense would kind of do to transform their entire scheme. The final playoff series I have to ask you about, and I know you you talked about this on Twitter this this morning. We're recording this late on a, a Thursday night. Uh, the Jazz Rockets, what is if, – if you had to nutshell what's going wrong for Utah on the defensive end right now, what uh, what is it? Am I allowed to say everything? <laughs> yeah, you can say whatever you want. I mean, it's pretty close to everything as far as I'm concerned. Um I think that it does start with Rudy Gobert. Um, you know, he's obviously the fulcrum of this defense and the rim protector that Utah needs. But he—I don't know if it's a disconnect between him and the coaches or exactly where things have gone wrong. But he just doesn't seem to be executing the defensive strategy as it should be executed, and that's kind of the get high on James Harden's left hip, force him to his right hand, and kind of make him make decisions when he gets into the paint. I mean, he's shot 4 of 17 from Florida range this series, which is basically exactly what you want as a defense. But Gobert continues to kind of get way too high in this defensive scheme where he's stepping up on Harden drives and kind of allowing that lob to Capella behind him. And someone or, you know, maybe Rudy Gobert just needs to do it by himself, needs to understand that, the goal of this defense is to allow James Harden to shoot floaters. And if James Harden gets into the paint, you cannot be concerned. You just have to understand that we're picking the best of a lot of bad options because this guy is so advanced on the offensive end that when he gets into the paint, your only goals are make sure he can't generate lobs and make sure he can't get to the front of the bucket. And the way that Rudy Gobert has played within this defense is just not good enough. And, you know, it's obviously not a defense that Utah has played for the duration of the season. It seems like something that they've taken from Milwaukee based on their scouting and tried to execute, but it really just it just hasn't been good enough. I don't know if they have the uh, – or actually I would just say that I don't think they have the length on the perimeter to perfectly replicate uh, Milwaukee's scheme. And I also think the Bucks. it comes in handy that you have two elite rim protectors in that lineup that they're most – going to play and that kind of leads me to the question so let's say the Jazz just aren't capable of even coming close to replicating that scheme then they're just they're better off Rudy Gobert overplaying the basket as opposed to overplaying James Harden's um, you know drives right no I think that you're right I, I think that it makes a lot of sense for Utah to go back to a base scheme if you're not able to execute a defense that's like so far outside of the norm that you're giving up easy buckets, it, it probably makes more sense to just try to guard Harden straight up and hope for the best. I think that the opposite end of that spectrum is going a little bit further with this team and, and really over and pre-rotating and you know trying to get some of your guys into the paint that aren't Rudy Gobert and, you know, crashing with more size off of P.J. Tucker. But it, it kind of seems like that ship has sailed just because you're down 2-0, you're looking for a little bit of desperation. And if I were Utah, I would just kind of go back to more of a base scheme and just hope that your offense can get, you know, X percent better. You make more open looks, you play a little bit more in the half court, and, and you try to win a game at home. Yeah, I, mean, I guess that's the other thing for Utah is that they have missed – uh, before the game got out of control, especially in game two, 
they just missed a ton of wide open threes and on just completely wide open threes. I know tracking data is not perfect, but uh, they're eight of 40 on just completely uncontested threes for the series. So, t- so 20% and Rudy Gobert, which is just not a number again, tracking data is imperfect, but I think this has more to do with how much time he's probably not spending in the right position around the basket. Uh, Houston shooting 81.3% at the rim with him as the primary defender there. So that's, I'm really interested to see how they're going to come out in, in game three based off what's happened through those first two tilts. Yeah. 83% is a huge number for a guy who's one of, if not the best rim protector in the NBA. Do you subs- subscribe to the idea that this should impact, um, let's say future defensive player of the year candidacies where it's, yes, it's a regular season award, but if they, if, if Houston can, so I know there's such a thing as bad matchups, but if the Rockets can, uh, play him off the floor bunch. Uh, does that take away from his appeal, or do you think this is just more of a functional failure at, at the team level? No, I mean, I think that's an interesting concept. Um, I've, if you were to subscribe to that theory, I think that you probably have to go with a wing winning defensive player of the year pretty consistently in the modern era. And you obviously have a guy in Giannis who was definitely capable of winning defensive player of the year this year. I'm sure he's going to get some first place votes. And so it really is a question of whether you want to consider positional versatility in a guy who can a protect the rim, but also play on the perimeter and play against different offensive schemes. Or if you want to go with a guy like Gobert, who is going to be good against, you know, maybe 25, 26 other teams, but his deficiencies are really going to be exposed against the top flight guards. And because the top flight guards usually play on the best teams, you know, some of the best teams in his conference and in the NBA. At Blue Wire, we don't just partner with any advertiser. We want to make sure we're giving our listeners a good deal on a product. That's exactly why we love doing business with Harry's. Harry's is giving Blue Wire listeners a shaving kit for just $3. Go to harrys.com slash bluewire and you'll save $10 on a trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. If you're not familiar with Harry's, it's time you should be. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. The founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have already tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your razor for only $3. Are you ready for some actual Cavalier stuff now? which is the pretense under which I brought you here and then just threw all these other questions at you. Uh, I, I thought we were just going to talk about the playoffs the whole time. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the Cleveland Cavaliers, 19-63 and 63 on the season. Um, for me, the place to start with them, I guess, would be their head coaching search. So I wanted to know if you had any candidates that they've been linked to that you really like or who you think they'll look at. And um, a listener question that relates to this Demetrius Smith at Squirrel91 wants to know whether they should go young in their search. 
I agree with Demetrius that they should go young. I think that someone in the Kenny Atkinson, Lloyd Pierce type mold who has a player development background and is able to grow with the team makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, some of the guys that I like and I acknowledge that it's incredibly difficult as someone on the outside to really understand the inner workings of the assistant coaching ranks in the NBA. And so both of these guys have international coaching experience. And I think that that kind of helps get a little bit look into their mindset. And so the two guys that I really like are Chris Finch of the New Orleans Pelicans and Chris Fleming of the Brooklyn Nets. Both of them are offensive-focused assistants, and I think that both of them have done quite a good job um, in the NBA. And I think that the Cavs should be looking more generally for a guy who has a more offensive background. I know that they're going to interview Juwan Howard. Uh, He's not a guy I'd really be interested in because he comes from more of a defensive tilt. And I really think that with the way the NBA is going, but also with the way that this team is built, it makes a lot of sense to really focus on the development of the offense, development of guys like Colin Sexton, really pushing the pace and running good actions. And so those are two guys that I, I think are worth a look. Um, obviously, Jordy Fernandez and Nate Tibbetts out in Portland are, are both guys that I think should also be on the list. And, you know, from there, I, I think it's kind of difficult to get a look into exactly what these guys have done because some of them don't have any head coaching experience. But more generally speaking, I think young offensive focus is the right way to go. Do you think uh, the other Portland assistant, uh, David Vanderpool, is worth a look? No, I, I think that David Vanderpool is worth a look. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to read up on some of these guys and understand exactly what their background is, and it looks like Vanderpool does also have that player development connection. And so uh, I think that, you know, basically anyone who's young uh, has player development experience and, and has some offensive focus and, and has some idea of the system that they're going to run is a good candidate. Like I said at the top, I think it's just hard for, you know, people like me, you, and, and anyone else who's not kind of in the business to really understand exactly what portions of the teams uh, these guys are controlling and, and what they're actually bringing to the table. So I'm really happy to, to go out there and interview anyone who's going to give me an offensive philosophy that kind of fits in with the Lloyd Pierce, Kenny Atkinson school of thought. And I, I think there's, from us having the outsider perspective, the real value lies in how creative or open-minded are they in their search? If they're, you know, if they're going after these uh, re- unknowns when it comes to just head coaching, that at least shows that they're committed to not only thinking outside the box, but going through more of a, a gradual process than trying to rush anything or seek that uh, insta turnaround. No, I think that's a hundred percent true. I mean, you're, you're looking for someone who's in this for the long haul. This isn't going to be a one-year turnaround job. You, you need someone who's going to understand where you're at as a franchise and, and grow with the young guys that you have on your roster. And like I said, I really do think that the Lloyd Pierce, Kenny Atkinson mold is exactly what you want to draw from. And it's just a matter of kind of going out, doing your due diligence and finding a guy who is going to fit that mold. I'm not sure what your draft prep has been to this point, but let's say the Cavs don't win the number one pick. And if they do, the pick is obvious. It's Zion Williamson. Are there any uh, 
other fit, other players that you like as a fit for them and uh human torch at uh a brace underscore o nil sayo uh i probably butchered the pronunciation there but uh, they want to know if they had the second pick and zion's gone uh who would you choose is basically the question i think another listener asked uh if, if it was between R.J. Barrett or John Moran, if those are the ones you consider the consensus picks up there, who do you like better for Cleveland? Yeah, I think that R.J. Barrett is the right pick if you have a choice between him and John Morant. I just can't imagine building a backcourt around John Morant and Colin Sexton that's ever going to p- compete on the defensive end. Um, uh, I'm of the personal opinion that I think that John Morant has a bit of a ways to go. Uh, especially when it comes to his strength and his ability to create in space. And I just don't think that adding two project point guards to the roster is is where Cleveland needs to be at this point in time. I'm not in love with R.J. Barrett, but I do think that getting someone who can get buckets um, and, you know, who's someone who plays the wing is something that they do need on the roster – I don't think that R.J. Barrett is a completion piece in, in terms of where the roster's at, but if, if you're looking at the guys at the top of the board, um, I, I think that R.J. Barrett might be the right way to go. I would also consider Jarrett Culver. Yes! <laughs> I am Sorry. Culver a lot. I'm, I'm a bit worried about his ability to kind of fit in Cleveland just because I think that Colin Sexton might not be the right point guard to pair next to him. But I I think that in a vacuum, I I like Culver a lot. I think that his skills are solid and his positive growth trajectory is something that I'd like to see in a prospect. And so I think that probably Barrett and Culver would be the two guys that I'd be most intent on looking at. I don't think that someone like DeAndre Hunter fits really where the Cavs are at, but more generally speaking, I think that it's important to take a long-term view just as it is with the head coach with this pick because you're probably going to be down at the bottom of the lottery or close to it in at least one more year. And so you're just trying to build this puzzle out. Uh, my draft hot take at the moment, and I always tend to fall in love with a player that people either falls under the radar or people are dragging at some point, is that Cam Reddish is going to have the better NBA career than R.J. Barrett. So I'm, I'm wrong often, but that's the, I'm just not a Barrett fan. I would like, you mentioned Culver. I would like him uh, next to Colin Sexton much, much more than I would like um, Barrett. And I would say the same for Cam Reddish, but I don't think, I do think that it's comfortable to the point where if Cleveland has a top three pick, that's probably not a gamble. Uh, You know, I don't think he would be close to the best player available in that area. Yeah. I've been generally team trade back. Um, for a little while now, I, I don't, I'm not in love with the top of this draft um, more holistically. And I think that the expectations that you might place on one of these guys by him being the second pick uh, might, you know, turn him into a failure. Whereas if you took the same guy with the fifth or sixth pick, I think that the lens through which people view him might be more favorable. And so, if you do feel as if, you know, some of those guys two through whatever at the top of the board are generally equal, I'm not against the idea of trading back and picking up another asset and, you know, maybe getting a little less pressure on one of these guys. Yeah. I wonder if he, just for all the reasons you mentioned, if the trade down market's going to be robust in this draft. Um, I also wonder what type of value you get for trading back in a draft like this, but that'll be something. 
Jay Monitor. Um, so with Colin Sexton this year, I did a very good job, I'll say, of tracking his three-point shooting because I was intrigued even when he didn't really have the volume just from the jump. The thing that I wasn't really on top of until it became a, a national story is how much his shot selection improved um, from mid-February on, basically. Uh, his, his shooting percentage from the All-Star break on jumped by nine percentage points in the restricted area. He was actually taking a good number of pull-up three-pointers uh, by the end of the season, and he was hitting them. Uh, I think after the All-Star break, he hit 41.8% of his pull-up three-pointers, which ranked fourth in the league among anyone who took more than 50 of those during that time. Uh, this, when you watch him play now, is is I know the passing is still a thing. His, his potential assists were definitely up um, after the All-Star break. Do you see him as... I know we're entering more of a positionless era, but do you do you see him as a type of floor general who can lead in offense, or do you think that he'll eventually have to uh, maybe transition into more of an, an off-guard role, for want of a better term? No, I think that Consexon's future is as an off-guard. I personally don't feel like passing is something that people can develop Um you know, to get to a solid level from, you know, where they start at coming into the NBA, I think it's one of the most difficult skills to develop. And I think that Colin Sexton is well below average at his position for it. I think that he can definitely improve, but not to the level that you need in a guy who's going to be your floor general. I think that we've seen him be able to get buckets, um, you know, kind of in what looks like somewhat like a Jordan Clarkson role uh, with the with this Cavaliers team. Um, I think that Clarkson is definitely a better passer than Sexton at this point in time, but you can kind of see that mold coming into play a little bit. And so I think that you ideally would want to pair Sexton with a player like Nikola Jokic or uh, Blake Griffin or someone who's a taller handler who's going to be more of the hub of your offense, and then Sexton would kind of be the backside pick-and-roll guy, the guy who's going to attack off the catch, off the rotation, as opposed to the guy who's going to initiate everything from the jump. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at team building, those are obviously guys who are considered stars or superstars in this league, and so it's going to be difficult to find the right pairing for Sexton, in my opinion. Do you think that uh, – I think when a lot of people look at the Cavaliers roster, they see, I would probably say, a dearth of – uh, young upside. How important do you think Jetty Osman is to their future? And Eddie at Ready for Death um, wants to know if you could see him having. He wants to know his project. What his actual question is: What's the projection for how you think Jetty Osman's numbers will look next year? But do you see this as you view him as a core piece of this team moving forward? I certainly think that the Cavs would like him to be one. Um, I, I think that he showed a lot of growth this year, especially off the dribble. I mean, there were times last year when you really thought that he like almost couldn't dribble at all. And so I think that you know his stepping into a larger role was uh, encouraging to see. Uh, again, I think you're looking for a positive growth trajectory, especially from guys – who are as young and inexperienced as him. And so I think that Jetty could potentially be, uh, you know, maybe a solid starter or high end of the bench guy. I think that he definitely has an NBA skill set. I don't envision him being a star 
or a fulcrum of the team at any point in time. But, you know, if you're building the next Cavs team that's going to, you know, make the playoffs or be a, a pretty solid squad, I think that Jetty could definitely be a part of that team. The a lineup I would be – it didn't do well by the numbers this year. I think it was like a minus 12.5 points per uh, 100 possessions. But having him at the four with uh, Larry Nance Jr. at the five and then you have Colin Sexton – on the court that setup really intrigues me i think some of the problem with that numbers is you know, you had jordan clarkson filling another guard spot in that situation uh, for part of the season there was alec burke there as well um and so maybe if you're just able to i don't know who you really plug and play there those two three types are really hard to find or one three types depending on what you're looking for uh with colin sexton but that would be sort of just an intrigue you know you plug culver in there and then you find um i guess either you could go with a another wing or uh, again if you don't trust context to be the primary ball handler uh someone else like that but that would be sort of a just a, a rebuilding setup that'd be interesting i don't know if that ends up being a real nucleus but that's that's more of an arrangement that that i found interesting to watch uh play those three together again it didn't happen too much that killed but when i did watch the Cavs, i saw it broken out a few times and i actually really liked it um aesthetically anyway. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the issues or potential issues is that Jetty definitely does better guarding down than guarding up. And I think that a lot of his early season struggles came defending the four position. And I think that once Kevin Love came back into the fold, guys kind of got moved down a little bit towards their natural positions. And even in his rookie year last year, when, you know, the Cavs were a solid team, when he was getting most of his run, it was guarding guys who were smaller than him. He spent a ton of time on ones because the Cavs really didn't have that traditional one. They were obviously cycling through Isaiah Thomas, Derek Rose, and then George Hill came in. And so I think Jetty is probably more suited to guard maybe a, a two, a, you know, maybe someone who's coming off screens. And then you have someone else, maybe, like you said, like a Culver come in and, and guard that perimeter score, the, the opposing wing threat. And you play him next to uh, Kevin Love and a shooting center, and I think that that's when you start to at least get something that's going to conceptually, you know, be interesting for this team. I think uh, maybe both of us deserve a medal for not having mentioned Kevin Love's name before now. Uh, I, I think everyone's question was a lot of people. I even entertained the idea. It was clear that they were smart not to, but of them just selling him off at last year's trade deadline, I think he increased his value, whatever it might be, um, in the time that he played thereafter, just to show some of the things that he could still do offensively. Uh, what do you think they should do with him? And Martins, at underscore Pedro Martins, wants to know if keeping him is a smart decision. Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, it's most important to say that Kevin Love's very good at basketball. Um, I think yes. that, you know, the Warriors or the lens through which people view the Warriors has warped some people's visions of what it means to be a solid, you know, big man in this game. But, you know, this is a guy who shoots the shit out of the basketball. And I think that that's kind of the most important thing. I think that if you were to put Kevin Love in like a Milwaukee system right now, I think that he would be excellent. And, you know, I, I, I think that his trade value probably remains low just based on the contract that the Cavs gave him. And, 
you know, for that reason and the fact that this team just generally seems to like each other and there seems to be a good amount of chemistry in this locker room, especially going down the stretch, it seems like these guys actually were having a lot of fun. I, I think that Kevin Love is kind of an integral piece in, in that, in, in the team building and in the chemistry side of things. And, you know, I, I don't want to give him up for pennies on the dollar. I think that that would be a mistake. And, it, I'd be hard-pressed to find a team that's really going to come in and give you a godfather offer. So I would imagine that Kevin Love is probably going to finish you know, next year and, and maybe even the year after, at least, on this contract with the Cavs. Ooh, I find that a little surprising. I guess it does work if you're, you know, if it seems like he, if he doesn't have a problem doing it and he's good for the locker room, he's not as good as he is. Even when he was in Minnesota, he was not really good enough to ruin a tank job. They, those were fringe playoff teams that never made the playoffs. Part of it is that you're just, I mean, you look around the league, what, who is the team that's going to give you real assets for Kevin Love? Who's the team that thinks that Kevin Love's going to be the guy who's going to come in and, and put them over the top? The only one that actually springs to mind, and I do think it's a question of fit because as you sort of noted, I think he could probably fit anywhere, but just with the way that bigs are viewed now, there's not a lot of these vacancies for um, one, someone with his salary on cap sheets, and then two, just as a, a starting level player who is, despite his defensive issues, might be best off playing the four unless you have a hyper mobile five around him. And the only team that I, I, I've talked about this a bunch and it, it sounds repetitive, but after racking my brain, it would be if Charlotte gets desperate and they're really trying to keep Kemba Walker, that they give up. Um, I, Malik Monk doesn't really have the cash. They have a first round pick prospect anymore, particularly to the Cavs of Colin Sexton, but you know, would they, after the draft, renting free agency, their rookie, 30 days after the rookie contract to sign, would they trade this year's pick, a lottery protected next year's pick, and then just expiring contracts for Kevin Love? And that might be the ceiling um, on a deal that the Cavaliers could get. It might also be unrealistic. I, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't really appeal to me from where I sit. I, I don't think that there's much that Charlotte can cobble together that's going to make me happy. But, you know, I, I do think that, it's possible that Kevin Durant, you know, goes to the Knicks or goes somewhere else this summer and we kind of reconceptualize exactly what you're looking for in a big and maybe Kevin Love's, you know, defensive detriments aren't going to hurt you as much in the playoffs as they do right now. And maybe some team looks at him at the next trade deadline and thinks, you know, this is the guy, whether it be the Durant Knicks or LeBron and the Lakers or someone. But that would be hysterical. I would root for that. LeBron's Lakers deciding that Kevin Love is the answer. I mean, you know, it honestly might be just the way that things are going right now. You look at the Lakers roster and you look at them adding a guy who can shoot the basketball at the four position and, and you might see some spacing open up on the floor for guys like Brandon Ingram or a guy like Lonzo Ball. And so I don't think it's out of the world of possibilities, but if Kevin Durant leaves the Warriors and goes elsewhere, I do think that some things kind of come back into view from a more pre-2016 perspective. Ooh, that's it. I never really even thought of that way. That's interesting. And so if we're operating under the assumption then that they won't move Kevin Love, and I do tend to agree with you at least, um, I don't know if I'd be willing to go, and you obviously you know this better than I do, I don't know if I'd be willing to go the next two years or even finish next season, but I do think he'll be – on the roster to start next year. What are the moves that you're looking at them to make this summer? And uh, the article from uh, Chris Fedor 
uh, the other day mentioned uh, that the Cavaliers would be interested in acquiring Gordon Hayward from the from the Celtics if they were going to salary dump him. And Michael Villa at Big Mac Villa uh, wants to know if something like that could actually happen for them. And I'm I, I my my question that would attach to that is is there any way that you could see the Cavaliers doing it if they're not getting an asset in exchange? Like I can't imagine Boston viewing Gordon Hayward as a contract that it needs to salary dump, that it's that scared of paying the tax. I guess they would have to lose the Anthony Davis sweepstakes and Kyrie would have to walk and they'd have to be at this weird quasi rebuilding point. And then on the flip side, if you're the Cavaliers, unless you're trying to get back to the playoffs next season with him and Kevin Love, I don't know why you would view Gordon Hayward's uh, two years and like $70 million that he has left as an asset for your team. No, I agree with you. I think that it would be hard for me to understand why the Cavs would ever be in a place to add Gordon Hayward to this roster. I mean, you're paying a ton of money to guys like Brandon Knight, um, you know, who aren't contributing on the floor already. And I think that by taking on the Knight contract, the Cavs basically guaranteed that they were going to operate as a team who's paying a lot in salary. Um, And obviously they're going to lose guys like J.R. Smith off of their books. But I think that you can kind of look at yourselves as a team that's going to add two first-round picks with your pick and the Houston pick, and then you're going to operate around the margins for another year. You're going to be young. You're going to try to grow internally, hopefully around a new coach who kind of understands what he's getting into. But, you know, after that, I think that this, this year is really just another year where you might look to take on some salary dumps in return for assets, but you're not really going to add – anything externally that's going to be earth shattering. What's interesting for them when looking at the salary dumps is uh, on my cap sheets, which are, this is so early, but, and I have them, if they get, let's say they get the number one pick, um, Houston pick is going to be 26. I think Uh, if they just flat out wave J.R. Smith at the 3.9 million to get him to go away, they would, I actually have them as a taxpayer at that point by about 3 million bucks. And so that's not impossible to duck, I'm just wondering what is the the value then of moving JR's contract? Because I know that he, since it was signed under the old CBA, another team wants it because then they could actually waive him for that amount. His salary doesn't need to be uh, his salary and his salary would still count as the 15.7 million trade piece. I just don't know unless the I mean, the Cavs have shown they're willing to pay the tax before, but they're not going to pay the tax for a team like that next season. Are they? I mean, that would be my thought. You know, I, I feel like at some point in time, Dan Gilbert wants to reduce that tax bill, wants to get to a more reasonable number to fit the team that he's putting out on the floor. And, you know, J.R. Smith is probably going to be an asset for some team. Uh, you know, maybe you can pick up a second-round pick, um, maybe a higher second-round pick, something along those lines, in exchange for, you know, that CBA loophole. But... Outside of, you know, maybe moving that contract and, and again, maybe bringing back a guy like David Nwaba, uh, you know, some moves that are more around the edges, I, I think that this isn't going to be a team that's going to be making, a, you know, earth-shattering waves in, in the offseason. Um, do you think uh, Tristan Thompson finishes the season there? I have a tough time wondering if he could be moved at his price point, but I, I do wonder if there could be a buyout situation there. And then maybe that's how, depending on what happens with where they land in the draft, what they do in free agency um, with their exceptions, 
maybe that's how they save or make sure that they skirt the tax next year is maybe in buyout, early buyout negotiations with him much earlier than we'd be used to seeing. Yeah, no, I think that that's a, a good point. I think that Tristan played above my expectations for him when he was healthy this season. Um, you know, obviously he had the calf injuries that were recurring and the Cavs probably held him out of many more games than they would have if they were in contention. Um, again, it's it's hard to kind of wrap your head around a guy with his skill set where he's a very traditional five. He's obviously going to do good work on the offensive glass, but he doesn't really have much of an offensive skill set. And, you know, he's looked a little slower switching onto guards on the perimeter, helping a team that's really in contention. But, you know, if there's a team or he thinks or his agent thinks that there's a team that's potentially looking for his services and he's willing to give back a decent amount of the salary owed to him, I think that the Cavs would certainly be open to those negotiations. Yeah, uh, I guess that's a good point. The other option for them would be, I don't know if this is dipping too far into the rebuilding asset pool, but Larry Nance Jr.'s extension kicks in and he's... 26, not the optimal age for a rebuild, but he's also on a declining salary scale. That's someone that you could probably move in exchange for an asset. But I don't, again, I I just, I'm interested to see what cost cutting moves they ultimately make if they use J.R. Smith to take back uh, more money than it would cost to waive him. I think that Larry Nance is someone that they will probably look to keep around. Um, I think that. You know, his connection to the city is something that's a bit intangible, but something that they like to have kind of, you know, in the ranks, someone who's going to sell tickets and, you know, make fans happy. Uh, He obviously has the passing skills of probably a top three passer on this roster, if not higher. Uh, and, you know, with the dearth of passing options in the backcourt, I think that a distributor is something that is helpful for this team. And so I, I would be pretty shocked if they moved on from Larry Nance. And uh, I'll just leave on this note. Uh, I appreciate you letting me cannibalize so much of your time. Is there – do you see this as as – as it's actually going to be a gradual rebuild or do you you know if you keep Kevin Love on the roster if you've already reinvested in Larry Nance do you think they run the risk of trying to accelerate it at all and so like I don't even want to like try to coach you into making if I gave you an over under on wins next season or how long until they get back to the playoffs but do you think that this is just a process that you see them in this post LeBron era actually following through on yeah no I'm not entirely worried by the Cavs winning too many games. I think that there are many options that you can take, whether it's similar to this year and, you know, Kevin Love being out for a while or, you know, you, you take a tact of just playing him less or, or whatever it is. I, I'm, I don't think that winning too many games is, is something that should be incredibly concerning for this team. Um, you, you still have a lot of holes to fill on the roster and, I'm not entirely upset about winning basketball games if they're won the right way. You know, if, if it's the correct process, if it's 
guys shooting the basketball well, if you're running a modern offense, you're taking a ton of threes, and you're kind of getting guys into the habits that you would need them to be for a good basketball team, I think that I'm okay winning games. If you're playing basketball like they did for the majority of this season, I think that winning games is more concerning. But if you're bringing in a, a new coach who's going to kind of instill the modern basketball ideals in a guy like Colin Sexton or Jetty Osman or whoever it is, then the young guys overperforming what they've been is not going to be of concern to me. This, and I, I don't want to advocate for them potentially uh, expediting the process or spending a ton of money on their roster after next season. But, you know, if Colin Sexton plays well again, you have a top pick in this draft, you're probably going to have a really good draft pick next year. They do, they project to have a ton of cap space in the summer of 2020. It might be, I know that free agency class isn't particularly deep, and I know that Cleveland isn't necessarily a big free agent destination, but that might be a a point where they could really improve their team in a, in a fast, efficient, and in, in a manner that doesn't necessarily set them back or, or look too combustible. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be the thought if you're looking for a way where this team is going to take a jump. It would be, you know, next summer, not this summer. And so if you can kind of show some signs of life this season where the team's looking decent, uh, you know, you think that a guy like Sexton is taking a leap or a mini leap and the team is generally playing in a more sustainable style that you might be a, a more willing destination for free agents that you could throw money at because you have that room. And just the ultimate goal this year should be that positive growth trajectory, whether it's a two-win improvement or a 20-win improvement. It's just seeing the team play a basketball style that makes sense that I think is most important to me. Well, Mike, thank you for, um, again, letting me monopolize so much of your time. This was, this was fantastic. Uh, if everyone, or if anyone has not yet followed Mike on Twitter, he is at M Zavagno 11. That's at M Z A V A G N O 11. Um, you can find him writing about the Cavs on fear the sword. And he also covers the entire league for, Dime you Prox. He's a fantastic follow on Twitter and, and just a fantastic uh, basketball analyst. So just make sure you're following him and reading him. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Danfa Valley. Please follow Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox. Um, and don't forget to follow the Blue Wire Network on Twitter uh, at Blue Wire Pots. Uh, until next time, I leave everyone with a shout out to the GOAT, Kyle Anderson. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.